Well, hello. And how are you doing? Hope you're doing well. I am very relaxed this morning, having a nice hot cup of coffee in my True North Eager Beaver. Democracy is something you do. Customize coffee mug. That's a different show that I produce. You can find it if you really want to. But today, we're here to talk about the jazz. Oh, yeah. So, once again, my friend, five songs, five stories, five artists. The continuing series, Songs and Stories, Supplemental Jazz Edition. This is part 70. 70 shows. That's a lot of music. Five songs per show. In a couple of cases, I've, I've thrown in an extra little bonus track just for the heck of it, you know? So you're looking at a lot of music, 350-plus jazz compositions, and stories to go along with each one. Today, I'm going to start the show off with a composition by the Ahmad Jamal Trio. This is Stolen Moments. Thank you. 
interpretation of the jazz classic Stolen Moments, originally written and composed by um, Oliver Nelson in uh, 1961, was the original recording from, that was on the album The Blues and the Abstract Truth, and after that release it it became, uh, well, a jazz standard pretty quickly because a great number of artists liked it so much they all decided to cover it. I guess it was 1960 when he first um, wrote the track and then released it in 61. It's been recorded quite literally hundreds of times, including um, a version by Frank Zappa, believe it or not, along with Sting from the album Broadway the Hard Way. Go figure, right? Well, Frank Zappa was a big jazz fan. He actually had an album uh, shortly before his death release titled uh, Jazz from Hell. You can look it up. It's different for sure. But... Let's talk a little bit more about Ahmad Jamal. And that album, The Awakening, recorded on February 2nd, 3rd, 1970, released on the Impulse record label. It was recorded in New York City at, um, what was the name of the studio again? Sound Studios or something along those lines? 
I don't recall exactly. I thought I had it in my notes here. Perhaps I was incorrect. I make mistakes. Either way, the album has influenced hip-hop. And and artists such as Nas and Common have sampled tracks from that record for a lot of their work. Give you an idea of how much of an influence that record was. Now, the producer for that record was was a gentleman who who had produced, well, John Lee Hooker, B.B. King, John Coltrane, and Alice Coltrane. I mean, there's there's a lot of heavy hitters on that album. It's been described as both cool jazz and post-bop. Ahmad Jamal, he's still going strong at the age of 92. His most recent award was received in 2018, the Leopolis Jazz Music Awards in uh, Lviv. Yes, Ukraine, 2018. He has also uh, released on, uh, his latest record, was uh, titled Balade, as in en français, Balade, uh, B-A-L-L-A-D-E-S. Mostly uh, solo piano recordings. I guess it was recorded um, the same time as the album Marseille, which was both, they were both recorded in 2016, but this record wasn't released until 2019 on the Jazz Village label. Mr. Jamal, he's shown no signs of slowing down. He, he was, well, he started, and my goodness, he was very, very young when he first started. He was three years old when his uncle challenged him to duplicate what he was playing on the piano. After that, well, he started to take formal lessons um, at the age of seven with uh, Mary Cardwell Dawson, whom he's described as she was a massive influence on him. She, of course, was uh, a musician, teacher, founding director of the National Negro Opera Opera Company, the NNOC. She passed away in 1962 at uh, the age of 68. She was an absolutely influential artist, musician, creator, director, producer, teacher. She helped uh, form Jamal. Now, he was originally born as uh, Frederick Russell Jones in 1930, but he changed his name to Ahmad Jamal, and uh, I'm not sure when that was. I believe it was in the 1960s. Let's see if I can find that in my notes here somewhere. Sometimes I have so much on the page that I just get confused and mixed up. So, in 1959, he uh, took a tour of North Africa to explore investment options in Africa. Jamal, who was 29 at the time, said he had a curiosity about the homeland of his ancestors, highly influenced by his conversion to the Muslim faith. So, somewhere around 1958-59 is when he changed his name. So, he's, he's... been Ahmad Jamal for a very long time. He said his religion had brought him peace of mind about his race, which accounted for his growth in the field of music. It has proved very lucrative for me. Yeah, he's a, Not only is he a very successful musician, but he's done very well with investments throughout his uh, entire career. And he has not stopped playing. The man is, well, incredibly talented. Of course, but he, he considers jazz to be American classical music. That's what he likes to call it. He's trained in both, you know, traditional jazz and and uh, the European classical style. You remember the 
title, the theme song for um, MASH, the television show, which was originally from the film MASH. So he, he, in the, he, he started playing electric piano in, 19, in the early 1970s. The, the album you just heard, the composition you just heard, was his last recording on an acoustic piano for decades. He recorded uh, an instrumental version of Suicide is Painless, the theme song to MASH became a hit for him, and they replaced the um, theme song of the film, or the television show, with his version, because the original had lyrics. His was just merely instrumental. His, his recordings have been featured throughout movies and television for decades. Two of them uh, featured in the music, the bridges of, uh, music, featured in the film, the bridges of Madison County, um, now, I've got, you know, issues with uh, some of the political leanings of Mr. Clint Eastwood, but uh, he has always, first and foremost, been a jazz fan and has made a few movies dedicated to jazz. So if you know anything about jazz and you know anything about Clint Eastwood, you know how much he loved Charlie Parker and John Coltrane, and he made movies dedicated to those gentlemen. And like I said, he just featured Damon Jamal in The Bridges of Madison County. And I'm just coming to the realization that that film was released in 1995. That's 27 years ago. Holy Hannah. Where has the time gone? Wow. Ahmad Jamal from the album, the Ahmad Jamal Trio of the Awakening, with his rendition interpretation thereof of stolen moments. Now, I just made mention a moment ago about uh, the late, great John Coltrane, and I thought I'd feature one of his compositions. This is from um, Blue Train, the, as far as I'm concerned, personally, my favorite uh, John Coltrane album, and I think his greatest accomplishment. Many will disagree with me, and that's fine. Art is interpreted by each individual in their own way. This is I'm Old Fashioned, uh, the remastered edition, John Coltrane. <laughs> Thank you. 
Originally composed for the um, film You Were Never Lovelier in 1942, it was introduced by Nan Wynn, who dubbed it for Rita Hayworth as part of a song and dance routine with Fred Astaire in the film. Composed by Jerome Kern, with lyrics by Johnny Mercer. Of course, for this show we have uh, dispensed with the lyrical version because I want you to hear John Coltrane's magnificent playing. Now, John... You know, he passed away July uh, July 17th, 1967, one year and 12 days prior to my birth. He was only 40 years old at the time. Sadly died of cancer. And it, it is a real tragedy that he didn't live longer because, man, there's so much music he had left in him. That record uh, was recorded in 1957 in a single day, believe it or not. It was uh, September 15th, 1957, at the uh, Van Gelder Studio in Hackensack, New Jersey, released in January of 1958, and it changed jazz. It was uh, during his time when he was uh, in residency at the the Five Spot as a member of the uh, the, uh, Thelonious Monk Quartet. Five Spot was a jazz club um, in New York City, in the Bowery District, down where um, CBGB's once was in that neighborhood. Now the bar that once was is now a, um, if memory serves, John Varvato's clothing store. But he's preserved a lot of the heritage of the ba- of the uh, of the bar, the artwork, things that were left behind. And he has a record selection there to purchase uh, albums that were from artists that once played and recorded and got their start at CBGB's. But that's a different podcast. Altogether, let's get back to the jazz, shall we? So the record, Blue Train, which is still, like I said earlier, my favorite uh, John Coltrane album. It was uh, a landmark recording at the time and sold half a million, or sorry, 500,000 copies. Yes, a half a million copies in the United States. 
uh, 50,000 in Canada, 100,000 in the UK, and 50,000 in, in Italy. So gold in Canada, platinum in Italy, gold in the UK, and gold in the USA. Bit of a rhyme there, not intentional. Trumpet player on that record was uh, the late Lee Morgan. Uh, Paul Chambers on bass, Kenny Drew on piano, Curtis Fuller on the trombone, and Philly Joe Jones on the drums. A group of artists that recorded with a number of artists throughout their careers, their respective careers. Philly Joe Jones, well, man, he must be on at least 300 recordings. He passed away in 1985 at the tender age of 62. As a band leader, he only had about 20 or 30 records, but as a sideman, oh my goodness, there's too many to name. The man was a legendary drummer. And that was a legendary lineup. Hard bop style. John Coltrane. Man, we'll never have another like him. It's so sad that he died so young. I mean, 40 is very, very young. You consider Ahmad Jamal is 92 and still going strong. He had 52 more years of living and recording. Okay, I'll try not to get too philosophical with you. And I'm going to play a composition by uh, from the album uh, Ballads, Dexter Gordon. This is I'm a Fool to Want You. Thank you. 
interpretation of the jazz standard. I'm a fool to want you. Originally composed by, believe it or not, Frank Sinatra, along with Jack Wolf and Joel Heron. There are lyrics, of course, but this is the instrumental interpretation. It was released uh, on Columbia Records as a 78 single in 1951. And uh, Sinatra first recorded the song with the Ray Charles singers back in uh, March of 51. In, arrange, in an arrangement by Alex uh, Axel, Axel Stordahl in New York. That's kind of cool. Now, Dexter Gordon's interpretation uh, of, of that song was uh, recorded in 1965. Uh, he had Freddie Hubbard on the trumpet, Barry Harris on piano, Bob Cranshaw on double bass, and Billy Higgins on the drums. But it sat on a shelf until 1991, when it was released on the album Ballads, 
featuring the iconic photograph, which is, uh, well, one of Jazz's all-time great photographs, Dexter Gordon taking a smoke break between sets in uh, New York City. I think it was in 19... Was it 1952? Something along those lines. I don't have the exact date. He, uh, he was known as Long Tall Dexter and the Sophisticated Giant because he stood... Six foot six inches tall, that's 198 centimeters, just two centimeters shy of the two meter mark. Very big man. And no, he was not a basketball player. When you're a jazz artist, you don't want to damage your hands in any way, shape, or form. So you stick to the safety factor. And don't do it. Oh, that photo was taken in 1948 at the uh, Royal Roost. A photograph by Herman Leonard. It's an iconic uh, image in jazz photography. Cigarettes were a recurring theme on uh, Dexter Gordon's album covers for the remainder of his life. He, he passed away in 1990 at the age of 67 due to complications from both kidney failure and cancer of the larynx. Smoking-related cancer of the larynx. So, let that be a lesson. I'm not pontificating. I'm not telling you how to live your life. But, you know, there's some advice for you. Take, it, take with it and do with it what you will. Like great Dexter Gordon. I particularly like that, uh, that version of his, uh, his interpretation there of that composition because it's just so smooth and laid back. And that was his playing style, smooth and laid back. Even when he did a little bit of freeform ad-lib, was still smooth and laid back. He was never one to overcomplicate things in his career. People, people absolutely loved him for that because he would interact with the audience, and then he'd, you know, improvise. But it was both engaging and intelligent, but but never gratuitously complex or unusual. It was always a conversation, simultaneously delightful and intellectual. The late, great Dexter Gordon, long, tall Dexter, the gentle giant, or the sophisticated giant, I guess. I don't know if he was gentle, but nevertheless, there you go. He played with a who's who of the jazz world. And, uh, two of his records, uh, recorded in 53 and, and uh, 55, uh, after he was released from Chino Prison, he was incarcerated for a couple of years due to, um, well, some misgivings. Daddy plays the horn and Dexter blows hot and cool. Two of his uh, landmark albums. They got him noticed on the scene. Okay. I'm going to play another uh, sax composition. This one by Paul Desmond, who was originally a member of the uh, Dave Brubeck Quartet on the landmark album Time Out. You may remember his, his sax solo in the song Take Five. This is Paul Desmond with Jerry Mulligan with their original composition, The Way You Look Tonight. This is the Rudy Van Gelder uh, remastered edition from 2003. Sit back, relax, and let the jazz flow over you. Thank you. 
Okay. All right. Let's not get too cheeky. It's got not. Don't want to get bent out of shape. I'm not trying to harm anybody here. So, Paul Desmond, um, he passed away at the age of 52 in 1977, two years younger than I am right now. Died of lung cancer. Uh, tragic, tragic, because he had recorded with uh, Who's Who. I mean, he composed the biggest jazz hit in history, Take Five, from the album Time Out, which featured both a drum solo and a sax solo within it with that... that, that um, Five five four time piano piece that uh, Dave Brubeck is so famously known for. Damn near impossible to try sampling it because of the way it works. I just I've tried I've tried and tried and tried to sample it and put it into a a composition with some drums, but I just can't get the cut right because of the uh, the time signature. Very difficult to do. Paul Desmond, uh, originally from California, he was born in 1924. Since 77, 1977, the year that Elvis died. He died in May, and Elvis died August uh, of 77 that year, so he was slightly overshadowed by uh, the supposed king of rock and roll. Don't get offended by that, please. It's It was a title that was bestowed upon a man who... Died on a toilet. Let's not get into that. Let's talk about Paul Desmond and his magnificent writing and playing style, along with um, Jerry Mulligan, who was also a very uh, accomplished, respected, and revered sax player. Jerry Mulligan, also known as Giroux, Gerald Joseph Mulligan, well, he was effectively, uh, you know, a gentleman who, as a baritone saxophonist, he, he played with a light and airy tone during the era of cool jazz. He was a pretty significant arranger, um, working with Claude Thornhill, Miles Davis, and Stan Kenton, just to name a few. He had a pianist quartet of the early 1950s with uh, a then relatively unknown trumpeter by the name of Chet Baker. It's still regarded as one of the best cool jazz groups ever. He was also a pianist and uh, played several other reed instruments. A number of his compositions, such as Walking Shoes and Five Brothers, have become jazz standards. He passed away in 1996 at the age of 68, so he did get a few more years over um, Paul Desmond. But the pianist quartet with Chet Baker, well, that was, that was what really, really brought them into the forefront of jazz and part of the zeitgeist of the uh, modern era. And if you're wondering what zeitgeist means, because I'm sure you've heard it a million times, but maybe you've never looked it up, don't worry, I did it for you. It's from um, uh, the 18th and 19th century German philosophy, uh, a zeitgeist. It's the spirit of the age. Um, It's an invisible agent or force dominating the characteristics of a given epoch in world history. Kind of interesting. It's also usually associated with George W.F. Hegel, um, contrasting with his use of Volksgeist, national spirit, and Weltgeist, world spirit. Its coinage and popularization precedes, uh, precedes him and is mostly due to um, Herder and Goethe, Hermann Goethe, 
Other philosophers who were associated with such concepts um, included Spencer and Voltaire. So, they're giving you a little bit of a background on the word zeitgeist. Paul Desmond and, J- and Jerry Mulligan were very much a part of that time when they played such a different type of jazz that influenced, well, everything that came thereafter. Two of a Mind is a great record. Absolutely brilliant record from start to finish. You should you should pick it up. The version you just heard was the uh, 2003 um, uh, remastered from the uh, complete RCA Victor recordings. It was remastered by Rudy Van Gelder. You can find that album. Um, there is a vinyl version of it. The complete RCA Victor recordings from 61 to 65. Or you can find the album Two of a Mind. I chose the um, the remastered version for the overall improvement in the uh, recording quality as the master tapes were used to reset the levels a little bit and provide some additional ambiance to the song. The late, great Paul Desmond and the late, great Jerry Mulligan. Okay. One more composition for you today as we've heard four. Let's move on to number five. And this is from uh, the album Way Out West. This is Solitude from Mr. Sonny Rollins. Thank you. 
1957 album, Way Out West, Sonny Rollins, with his hard bop interpretation of the Duke Ellington composition, Solitude. Now, Sonny uh, retired in 2014 due to respiratory issues, and if you're a sax player, well, that's kind of your career. He is still alive and well and healthy, but he just can't play or perform live anymore which is sad, but we will always have the music. And, you know, at the age of 92, retiring in 2014, he was well into his 80s, and, uh, yeah, he gave us seven decades of music. That's pretty amazing. You think about it, a number of his original compositions have become jazz standards over those years. And he's played everywhere that there was to play. And at one point in time, in the early 2000s, the aughts, he was being paid up to $100,000 per performance, which is pretty darn good for a jazz musician. I'm thinking, damn, way to go, Sonny. You got yours. Congratulations. Okay, I've been babbling a long time today, and we are around the one-hour mark, which is where I like to cut the show, because five songs, five stories, one hour, some sweet, short time for us to spend together. And I hope you've enjoyed the time we spent together today, because I certainly did. I do love to do this. If you like, you can uh, drop a couple of bucks on the Mixcloud page. You can subscribe via the um, RSS page. And you can subscribe on Amazon and uh, Google along with uh, Spotify. Some of the major streaming services this, uh, this show is available on. Anyway... Enough about me. Until we meet again, my friends, I will be here, stalwart, as always, putting together compositions for you to listen to, sit back, and enjoy. Until then, wherever you are in this world, I hope you're happy, healthy, and very, very jazzy. Until we meet again, take care. Bye.